see all of you. Just realized I didn't bring a Bible, so hopefully... I put all my verses in my notes, but one of you could have a question and want me to turn somewhere. Thank you, Robert. I appreciate that. Thank you, Robert. Okay. All right. Well, good to see all of you. Let me pray. Thanks for being on time. Father, thank you for this time this morning to discuss debt, and I pray to rightly divide your word. I would want to say what is faithful to it. I have my own thoughts about debt, and I believe they're, they're pretty strong ones, per, strong personal convictions, and I would even pray you'd refrain me from allowing them to influence this teaching. Uh, if should someone ask me about my personal convictions, I have no problem sharing them, but I'll try to be clear that they are what I, how we feel or feel led as a family. But I want to present uh, your word this morning, Lord. <clears throat> and so if it's any different in some respects than what I've taught before, although I believe only slightly, I pray that it could be clear. And if there's, uh, um, um, I don't know if I'd say damage that any previous teaching of mine on debt has done, if that is the case, then I pray that that could be uh, fixed this morning. Um, but guide each person here, Lord. The way we steward our finances is a huge deal, and it's a great reflection of our relationship with Christ. And so help us, help us to manage our money in a way that pleases and honors you. Look over these weeks, Lord, guide all the discussion, and uh, I pray you can be pleased with it, and uh, just fill me with your spirit to be uh, inspired to, to speak what would be faithful to you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen. amen. All right. Well, I don't normally talk about my books, or at least I don't think I do. I can't remember times I've talked about my books here at church, but I feel like I need to a little bit so you can understand kind of how this slight change in my view occurred. So the reason I don't talk about my books is so it wouldn't seem like I'm using the church to leverage sales of my books or something. Not like I'm ashamed to talk about them. If you ever have any questions, you can, you can approach me about that. So I, had, I have a, a multi-book deal with Harvest House Publishers, and I mentioned that it's multi-book because the first book on marriage they received from me without any pushback. So I guess if I back up, when I first met with them and they were entertaining signing, uh, offered me a contract, and they asked me if I had any concerns, I said, well, it would be, it's really important to me that I can be as bold or conservative as I feel led. And as you can probably guess, my books come from my sermon manuscripts. And so I don't want to change things that I preach. It would be what I would share at conferences, and I don't want anything I share at conferences or at the church to conflict with anything that I've written in a book. It would seem kind of inconsistent or even hypocritical. And so I said, well, if you can just allow me to be to uh, preach or write as boldly as, as I believe God's Word is, is being presented, then I that would be really important to me. I want to get to the end of my life and feel like I was faithful to Scripture. And they said, you know, that sounds really good. We, we extend, we're a conservative publisher, and I believe that they are. I haven't seen, I know they pulled at least one author after he committed adultery, and they don't have any of the authors, at least that I would think are big um, cons- false teachers. And so I sent them my marriage book, which maybe some of you have read, or at least you've listened to my marriage sermons, and you know that it's very conservative and they took it without issue. They went through it. I didn't get pushed back on anything. An editor is always going to provide thoughts, suggestions, but they were mostly regarding clarification or need for an illustration here or there or, you know, open this chapter better, conclude this chapter better, just those sorts of things relating more to um, context or, or grammar than any theological issues. <clears throat> so then I felt really good about how my first book with them went. 
on my marriage book. So then I give him uh, my finance manuscript, and then the editor that I've been working with, he sent it back to me, and they'd given me considerable pushback. It was, he said, we're going to have to go meet as a team. We're going to have to talk about some of the stuff you've wrote, written. And it was strong enough that he said we wouldn't publish it. And it was my chapter on debt. He said, if you, if you feel that strongly. And so the, uh, I told them, because you, when you get contracted, there's a number of words that you will provide in your manuscript. And so I was to give them a 65,000-word book, and the manuscript was about 72 or 73,000 words. So even if they removed that chapter on debt, which was probably like four, f- four or 5,000 words at, at most, it, I still would have, the manuscript still would have been long enough. And so they told me, you know, we met, we talked about it, because they have a team there, you know, the, the um, president and the marketing director and, and all the different people involved. And they all felt like what I said about debt was too strong. And so they sent me back all these comments and suggestions and verses. And the editor that I work with, I really respect him. I've really grown to appreciate him as a man of God. I believe he's very sincere, has a heart for Christ, and his edits always seem to be faithful to God's word. I've never thought that he wants to be, you know, run a popularity contest with a book or, or say what is, you know, um, sounds most appealing to people. I've never thought that he wants to soften he just thought that what I said was unbiblical in some, in some points. And so I'm going to be real clear at the beginning about the slight change, and then I'll share with you some of the things that have changed in, in my view here of debt. So if you've listened to me talk about debt before in sermons, it probably sounded like I would say that debt, pretty much under any circumstance, is sinful. Is that how it sounded like I've taught on debt before? Okay. Now, instead of saying that all debt is sinful, I would put debt in the category of being a wisdom issue, and in most cases, it is unwise to to be in debt. So don't see it as a considerable change. You're definitely not going to come in here today and hear me promote debt (laughs) whatsoever. Um, I would say that in most situations, to embrace debt because it's a wisdom issue is not just unwise, but it's foolish. All right, so any questions or thoughts? Just checking. Probably not, because you don't know what else I'm going to say yet, right, to defend that. So, Okay, let me begin with a story that I think captures many people's view of debt. So this man comes home, and he has this fancy new car. And his wife asks him, why did you buy that? We can't afford a new car, and there was nothing wrong with our old car. And so the man answers, and he says, well, our old car needed a new battery. And so his wife replies, well, then why didn't you just buy a new battery? And the man said, Well, I was faced with this choice. A new battery cost $100, and a new car cost $25,000, but they wanted me to buy the battery with cash. Does that make sense? Oh, my. That was a... Do you get... Okay. Do you get it? Or... (laughs) So, okay. I'll try to explain it, or maybe may not tell that very well. So the idea is... Where's my wife? Can you help me? Was that... They did. I don't. They didn't get it. Let me explain it. <laughs> so the idea is, he'd rather spend twenty-five thousand dollars in debt, or you know, pull out his credit card to buy a car, you know, and go into debt twenty-five thousand dollars and spend a hundred dollars. Never mind. Okay, we'll just move on. Here. <laughs> now that was the intro for my chapter on debt in my finance book. So I hope it, I hope my that goes over better with my readers than it went over in Sunday school here. 
So I do tend to think that people can relate to this man slightly in that they believe that buying things with a credit card or going into debt for something is better than spending cash because when they go into debt or use a credit card, it allows them to buy something with money that they don't have. So just to let you know ahead of time, you might have more trouble with this uh, teaching if you've had a favorable view of debt up to, up to this point. Um, and it's not, I don't even think avoiding debt is more difficult than some of the other things God's word says about finances. I actually think obeying or applying the Bible's teaching on debt is easier than applying the Bible's teaching on giving. Because if you want to give in the sacrificial way that I believe the New Testament in particular presents, then, or even if you want to give according to the Old Testament, many people think the Old Testament um, promotes giving a tithe, but the Old Testament promoted giving multiple tithes, which brought the giving much closer to 25% or one-fourth of your income than 10%. So if someone said, well, you know, we follow the Old Testament, we give a tithe, I almost want to say, well, which tithe or how many of the tithes? And how do you figure out how much you're supposed to give because the tithes can't even really apply today like they did in the Old Testament. So I think, it's, I think the Bible's teaching on giving and, how, and the sacrifice involved is actually much more difficult than debt. But because we're so used to debt, this can end up being a tougher, tougher teaching for us. Um, you might have more trouble with this teaching because the principles in it are very uh, contrary to the world. The world treats debt like it's a blessing or a wonderful thing. Um, if I tell you that it's important to give or save or plan for retirement, you're going to be able to find plenty of non-Christians that will agree with that. Almost any financial advisor would say the same. But if I tell you to avoid that, you're going to be able to find plenty of of non-Christians and some Christians and some financial advisors who are going to tell you that you're shortchanging your financial growth by not being willing to embrace it. Or basically, they're just going to disagree with me. Or I would say they're going to disagree with what the Bible says about debt. And I'll be the first to say we should consider the counsel of uh, financial advisors. There's great secular material that can be read that can help us with our finances. But hopefully, no matter what we would ever read or listen to, if it was a podcast on finances um, or any financial advisor we would talk to, we're always going to elevate what to have the premier standard in our lives regarding counsel. Scripture, yeah, we're we're going to be asking constantly if this agrees with Scripture. And we can't expect the world secular people or secular podcasts, or sadly even sometimes some Christian counselors to be telling us what God's word says. So the question is not what makes the most sense financially or what do financial advisors recommend. I'll tell you right now, one of the approaches that we've learned that many people apply to have gained considerable wealth from doing this. I've spoken to a few of these people on the phone, um, questioned them myself, and we've heard it recommended in many, of the, in many of the, or some of the podcasts that we've listened to. And it just goes like this. You, you purchase a home and you rent this home out, probably as an Airbnb, because you can typically make more money from an Airbnb than a long-term rental. And the income from that Airbnb pays for more than your mortgage payment. So what you're getting is you're basically getting a house that's paid for and you're able to keep the money that goes above the mortgage. Well, there are people that buy multiple houses like that. They're leveraging debt to bring in considerable income. Well, the reason that I don't want to, wouldn't want to do that in my family, the reason that Katie and I are not rushing out to buy lots of houses to 
rent out as Airbnbs, even if we thought it would be financially lucrative, is because we think the Bible speaks so um, well, describes debt in such a way that to us it, it, it seems like it would contradict God's word. So my point is, even if something looked successful or would allow a financial prosperity according to the world's standards, it doesn't mean that it's something we should be doing in our lives. Even if it looks like it works in the world, it doesn't mean that it's something we should be doing in our families or in our homes. Because the question is always, what does God want? What does he want us to do with our money? Not what, what looks the best in the world's eyes. And so if we walk by faith financially, then that can mean not doing some of the things that could look the best financially to the world. Okay, any questions or thoughts or anything? Kind of think about Peter's words where he says, we ought to obey God rather than man. I know that verse came up a lot recently with all the stuff with COVID and whether to obey the government or obey man, but it actually, I think, has a lot of application for the Christian life in general and just asking whether we should be obeying God or whether we should be obeying what man says. And man doesn't even have to be saying something sinful. It can just look wise according to the world. But the question is, is, is it what God's word says? So, so what is God's view of debt then? Uh, to learn the Bible's teaching on debt, I, and this was a major, this was, a, I don't know if I say major, but it was somewhat of a paradigm shift for me to consider that what I was reading about debt that had considerable weight to me was in Proverbs, which is a wisdom book, not in Leviticus, which is law. And so it's important for us to understand or recognize the differences between certain books of the Bible. So Leviticus, and you can see some of the same commands in Deuteronomy, is law. Proverbs is wisdom. One of the reasons people have trouble with Proverbs is that they treat it like law or absolutes when it's not. Commands in Leviticus, for those people that were under the Old Covenant, were, command, were absolutes, and those moral commands from Leviticus that are carried forward to the New Testament. So just briefly, the law had moral and amoral commands. There were ceremonial commands in the law, and we're familiar with these, like those associated with tassels on clothing or gardening a certain way or fabrics being mixed together. Those were not moral issues. Those were amoral ceremonial commands associated with Israel being what? Does anyone know? Set apart or holy. Many of those ceremonial commands were for Israel to be set apart or holy as a nation. They weren't moral, and so they were not carried forward in the law of Christ. Now, the moral commands are unchanging. In other words, if something was immoral in the Old Testament, it's immoral in the New Testament because all of morality is tied to the nature of God himself, which is unchanging. It is God's nature that defines morality for us, and so morality never changes. And so if it was immoral or sinful centuries or millenniums ago, it will always be immoral or it'll always be immoral or sinful in the future because morality tied to God's nature is unchanging, which is why those moral commands are brought forward from the old covenant to the new covenant. But Proverbs itself is dealing with, with wisdom issues and debt. This is one of them. So let's consider what the law and then what wisdom literature has to say about debt. So what does the law say about debt? The law doesn't condemn lending and borrowing. Instead, who knows what it does condemn? It doesn't condemn lending and borrowing, but it does condemn what? Usury. Very good. Who said that? Besides Chuck. Very good. Okay. And it does something else. It condemns usury and it promotes generosity. Those are the two 
absolutes that I could see are the two commands or two moral issues in the law. So Exodus 22, 25, I'm going to go through a lot of verses. It's up to you if you want to try to flip around to them or just listen or just take notes, but I don't want to have to wait for everyone to turn to each verse because it would prevent us from getting through most of the material. But I'm happy to give you any of these, any of these notes uh, later if you like. So Exodus 22, 25, it says, If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact... exact interest from him. So it seems here that you can lend money and you can expect that money back, but not expected to receive interest on it. If one of uh, Leviticus 25, if you want to turn to the right to Leviticus 25, and I'll just say something briefly. I might be wrong about this. I often look for New Testament parallels with Old Testament um, instruction. Have you heard me say, you've, I'm, I don't even want to ask that, it's probably so silly because I've said it so many times, but the Old Testament prefigures or foreshadows New Testament truths or reality. You've heard me say that many times. So in, in the Old Testament, were the Jews expected to show extra favor or special favor toward other Jews compared with Gentiles? Yeah, they were. That Jews were to show a level of treatment or favor to their brethren or to Jews that was different than toward Gentiles. And now, in my mind, the New Testament parallel, I believe it's Galatians 6.10, I might be wrong, so if someone looks it up and I'm wrong, let me know. Do good to all men, and then who knows the rest of that verse? Especially to the household of God, which tells me, do good to all men, but show special favor toward your brethren in Christ, to your brothers or sisters in Christ. So God expects us to, uh, you know, you don't write someone off and say, well, you don't go to my church, or you're not a Christian, you're not one of my brethren, I won't be kind to you, be kind to them, but he wants special kindness toward, uh, toward other Christians. And so that's kind of contained here where the Jews, I think that was prefiguring that New Testament reality when the Jews were told to show special favor toward other Jews. So in Leviticus 25, 35 and 36, if one of your brethren becomes poor and falls into poverty among you, then you shall help him like a stranger or a sojourner that he may live with you. And here it is. Take no usury or interest from him, but fear your God that your brother may live with you. Uh, Deuteronomy 15, verses 1 and 2. At the end of it, so I guess my point with Leviticus, you don't have to turn back to it. Sometimes I assume things are clear, but just to make sure it's clear, he says you can give them this money and you can expect it back, but just don't take any usury or any interest process. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. And so here it shows lending money, but at the end of the, uh, you know, kind of approaching like a shorter jubilee year where debts are going to be canceled. And I, I just want to be clear with you guys. I don't, I'm not absolutely convinced. I don't feel as strongly about this. I could be wrong. So you can push back. You can disagree with me. If you see something or you can ask questions. There are some things I feel incredibly, um, I don't want to sound prideful, convinced of. I don't know if that, does that sound proud? Some things I just will not budge and I'm completely convinced on what the Bible teaches in those areas. And then you kind of move out in concentric circles and this is not really far out there. I feel pretty good about it, but I, I confess I could be wrong. And so if you have any thoughts, feel free to to disagree with me, but this is where I've landed after studying it out more. 
So the point to notice is debt is not a sin because the law doesn't seem to forbid it. Now let's talk about what the wisdom literature says, which is probably, what's the premier Old Testament verse associated with debt? The one that... Proverbs says that the debtor is the slave to the lender. So, Psalm 15. Now, if you want to turn to the wisdom literature, Psalm 15 first. So, wisdom literature is all those poetical books. In your mind, kind of think of the Old Testament, 39 books being divided into three categories. The first, you can make greater divisions than this, but if we are very simple, you have the historical books, which deal with the history of Israel, which contain the law as given in primarily Leviticus, but also Exodus and then Deuteronomy. And then you have the wisdom literature, which would be Psalms, Proverbs, Job. And then you have the prophets, the 16 prophets, which divide into you know 12 or major and then minor or pre-exilic, post-exilic. So the wisdom literature isn't just Proverbs, it's also Psalms. So Psalm 15, it says, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? And then he goes on, he says, He who does not put out his money at interest. And then it goes on, it says, The wicked borrows, but does not pay back. But the righteous is, and then it goes on to say, is ever lending generously. So encourages lending out money, but doing so generally. And there's other verses, Psalm 37, 21, and Psalm 37, 26. Okay, if you, now if you hold there this idea that wisdom speaks to us about debt, and just follow me for a moment on this. Wisdom speaks to us about debt. What or who is the wisdom of God? Jesus is, right? So wisdom was incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ. And so what Jesus says is wisdom speaking to us, literally, bodily, physically. The personification of wisdom was found in Christ. So in the recent sermon, you could look at Jesus and you could say, that is Emmanuel, that is God with us. You could also say, that is wisdom incarnate. When he speaks, wisdom speaks. 1 Corinthians one twenty four says that Jesus is the wisdom of God. Also, verse 30 and Colossians 2, 3 say the same about Jesus being the wisdom of God. And his words also tell us wisdom about debt. Jesus says, give to him who asks you and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. So we're told to give, but we're also told to borrow. Now, borrowing to me would mean giving. You don't expect it back, and which is what we tell our kids. I don't know about your kids, my kids get in trouble because they act like they want to give, but it seems like they really want to let someone borrow. <laughs> Does that make sense what I'm saying? My kids, someone asks for something or they want to give something away, and then it's like later they realize they win it back. They want it back. Does it, has it ever caused problems with your kids when they've given something to someone else and then later they want it back? So my kids give, and then sometimes they realize what they really meant was borrowing, and so we said there's no borrowing in this home. You either give something away completely to someone else that you do not borrow it, let them borrow it, you do not expect it back, it just is too complicated. And I know some of you have also had some of the same issues because you've come to us and talked to us about our kids exchanging things like that, which we've, we all need to watch our kids like that, you know, and work together. And so here he's saying you can give, but he also says you can borrow. Two distinct things, and borrowing to me would mean that you're going to expect that money back. That's in Matthew 5, 42. 
So lending and borrowing are not discouraged. Second, usury and failing to pay what's owed are condemned. And then generosity is praised or generosity is encouraged. So up to this point, debt hasn't really sounded bad. So now let's balance this, balance this out with the Bible's warnings about debt. Chuck mentioned it earlier, Proverbs 22, 7. The rich rules over the poor and the borrower is the slave of the lender. And so how do we understand debt sounding? How do we understand debt sounding acceptable elsewhere, but now sounding unacceptable? How do we understand some verses that make debt sound acceptable and now making it sound unacceptable? If we combine the teaching on debt from the law and wisdom literature, we find the biblical balance is this. This is, so this is where I've found myself. This is the balance that I've struck. Because debt is not forbidden in the law, it's not necessarily sinful. But because wisdom warns against it, we are wise to try to avoid it. And we can also be very foolish to embrace it. The danger, which Proverbs warns against, is that debt can make us slaves to the person we owe. And in the New Testament, if we are going to be slaves, there's only, what are we going to be slaves to? What does the New Testament say? Yeah, it says we're going to be slaves to Christ or we're going to be slaves of righteousness. So you're going to give your life to be Christ's slave or you're going to give your life to living righteously and being a slave of righteousness. Romans 6, 18, 19, and 22. Or he says, be slaves of righteousness. Now present your members as slaves to righteousness and slaves of God. Romans 6, 18, 19, and 22. So Proverbs 22, 7, it seems like it's a cautionary alert to as much as possible not make someone else your master. And are there people who are slaves in our day? Are there people who are enslaved or have a master uh, that approaches the master people had in the Old Testament? Yeah, there are people and they can dread going to their mailbox. You know, they don't even want to look at another letter. They put off going to the mailbox because they don't want to see another bill that they can't afford or see how much the interest, and it's almost like I'm not just going to turn a blind eye and kind of hope that it goes away. I can't deal with it anymore. Um, Rod Rogers said, what does God have to say about the impact of debt on his people? In the Old Testament world, if you couldn't pay your debt on time, you became the slave of the lender until you worked off your debt. In our day, if you borrow money, you become the lender's slave by giving much or most of your income back to the lender. Any thoughts or questions or anything? All right, now, earlier I tried to sort of gently warn you about financial advisors. I kind of recommended them, but I also warned you that if they're not Christians, you you can't necessarily expect biblical counsel from them. And I think that's probably always important to understand. Whenever you're going to an expert, you can appreciate their expertise But if they're not a Christian, you can't always expect that they're going to be giving you biblical counsel. And I'll give you a real simple example that all of us are familiar with, doctors. You might be fortunate enough to find a doctor who's a Christian, but if you find a doctor who's not a Christian, he's going to give you the counsel that he believes is best and he's going to be completely sincere, but without being a, a man or woman who wants to apply God's word to that counsel, it might not necessarily be biblical. And so you have to keep in the back of your mind that I'm contrasting this man's expertise or professional opinion with what God's word says. And I think I told you that one time when I, went, when I was at the doctor, 
when dad was in there and the doctor's recommendation was to let him die. And that was a troublesome account or situation for my mother and I. Well, I guess I'd say this. I initially, I don't want to say believed as though the doctor lied, but I initially accepted the doctor's counsel because I thought that he was saying that if dad survived, he'd be a vegetable, basically. Or the dad's quality of life would be so bad if they, if they had to bring him back that he would almost be kept alive artificially. And so I wanted to be sure, though, and so I called the doctor and I said, you're saying to allow dad to pass. Then this is years ago. This isn't recent. This is probably four years, three years ago, four years ago. Is my mom in here? When was that? Four years ago. And so, and it happened so quickly. I, I could not believe that someone didn't sit down and talk about this with us. I can't believe that dad's life or death would just be a decision where a doctor says, we don't think we should resuscitate. And I understand he's busy, but, but mom, he talked to mom, and then mom came to talk to me. And I said, we need to kind of look into this a little bit. So I called the doctor, and I said, okay, you're saying he shouldn't be brought back. We should just let him pass, but describe his quality of life should he be brought back. And I'm telling you, the quality of life that the doctor described as he was trying to encourage me to let dad pass was a considerably higher quality of life than, you know, many people have. I thought even if dad's in bed, we can do many things with him. He'll see my children. We can have Bible studies. We can sing hymns. He could, it was just, it was shocking to me. And so you're not always going to get, because a doctor won't always, even if they're in the medical field, they might not always have the view of life that we do, especially the view of older people that the Bible expects us to have. So I kind of went off on a tangent, but I just want to invite you to consider that the counselors you go to, if they aren't Christians, don't expect them necessarily to always be giving you um, biblical counsel. So now I have to say this, and I don't like saying this, I really don't. My biggest concern for you isn't even financial advisors, it's churches. (laughs) Because if there's any institution that seems to be willing to embrace hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars in debt, sadly it is churches. And for what, typically? The building that they need, that they're convinced they need. And so I'm, I see you walking out of here and, and maybe, let's say, holding to this biblical view of debt, but then learning of this church that took on this 5 or $10 million mortgage for this building, and then you start to question what I'm saying, or what I really, maybe this sounds prideful, but what I think the Bible is saying. And I don't want you to do that. So I'm sorry, but I need to warn you, I believe against some of the approaches that, that churches even take. So we should be surprised when the world acts like debt is, or we should not be surprised when the world acts like debt is a blessing, but we should be surprised when churches act like debt is a blessing. It's sad when churches go into debt to supposedly accomplish the Lord's work, when I think the same Lord that they're claiming they want to serve with the debt would probably discourage the debt that they are considering embracing and would probably want them to allow him to raise the money for them. Now, there's a gentleman, because he shared this publicly with his church, I'll share it with you. He shared it at our ministerial. I like the approach he took. His name is Mike Kirkman. He pastors the EV Free Church in the center. I consider him a, him a friend. I hope he'd say the same. We've, we went to each other for counsel before, and I don't get to see him a lot, but I respect him, and I, I, I appreciate the way he leads his church. And so he wanted to do a fairly large remodel of his church. And I've been in there a few times and was able, because I don't go in there frequently, was able to see the work as it occurred, but over a number of years. 
because they would only do the work as the finances were provided from the church. And I just thought that was a really good approach. So Mike seemed to hold this before the Lord and say, Lord, if you want us to do this, then let the funds for this be provided from the people in the church. And then it's, it's like a, I don't know, a fleece or a litmus test. You put it before God, and then God can choose to reveal whether you should do that by providing the money. But if you take it into your own hands and say, I'm going to do this, and I expect God to get behind it, then I don't think we can be certain that that's God's will. And so he was, so it took him, do you, do you know how long, did he ever tell you how long it took? I think three to five years is my best guess. So that means that many times they were coming into a church that had construction being done on it in the, in a, the main area where you walk in, and it's done, it looks very nice, they did the kitchen and some other stuff, and so uh, I just appreciated that, that approach. But other churches, they might not do that, and so they'll say, well, and I think this is a very bold not in a good way statement. If a, if a pastor or an elder comes before the church and says, God wants us to do this, I don't know if people are sobered enough at times to what they're actually saying when they say that. If you say God wants us to do this, you had better know that God wants you to do that. And it had better be clear in his word. Or you can say something looser, like, we believe God wants us to do this, or we think God wants us to do this, or we think this is the direction he has for us, which I would feel way better about saying, because we don't hear audibly from God. Now, unless God's word directly addresses it, like let's say an issue of church discipline, then you can say God wants us to do this because we can look in his word where it, where it speaks on this issue. But to come before the church and say, God wants us to build this new church for him and take on all of this debt, I think that's very, very, uh, it's terrifying. Because in the Old Testament, what happened to people who spoke for God in the Old Testament when God hadn't spoken? They killed him. Those were, as soon as it was shown that someone was a false prophet, those people were stoned. So it's a really big deal. Few things seem to upset God as much in the Old Testament as someone speaking for him when he had not, when he had not spoken. Jesus said, God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And so worshiping God according to truth means worshiping him according to the revelation that he's given us in his word. And if there's warnings against debt, then it would seem we should apply those in the church. Now, the situation can be made a lot worse if a church justifies itself by saying, the Lord led us to do this. But then what happens if the church doesn't have the money for that? So picture this scenario. You have church leadership that comes and says, the Lord has led us to do this. But then if that church doesn't have the money for that mortgage or for that new building, who looks unfaithful? Not the leadership. They should, but God does because now it looks like God led the church leaders to do something and then he was not faithful enough to support the leading that he provided. And I think that the best thing that those church leaders should do is just fall on their sword and say, we don't have the money for this. We were wrong because God would provide. And if we haven't gotten the money, he hasn't provided it. Then that shows that we made the mistake. God did not make the mistake in this situation. So a church goes into debt financially. The leadership turns to the congregation, pleads with them, or perhaps guilts them into giving more money for the cause that God supposedly wanted. And then perhaps the pastor rebukes the people for not giving more. But 
if it wasn't what God wanted, then the pastor is the one who's wrong. And the, and the reason that people like to do this in conversations, why, why would someone who wants to marry an unbeliever, which this occurred in a conversation I'm just mentioning as an example, some years ago, there was a young lady I was talking to and she was going to marry an unbeliever. Well, guess, what, guess who she wanted to attach to this decision to marry the unbeliever? Because it's like the trump card and she thought I couldn't argue with it then, argue with her. This is what God wants. This is God wants me to marry him. And so as soon as you can attach God to a decision, then you have the trump card that nobody could argue with because then to argue with that person is to argue with God himself, who according to that person wants this. And I am thankful that this church doesn't say that. I'm thankful the elders don't, and I'm thankful the people in this church don't come and say, God said this, God said that, God told us to do this, God told us to do that. So, because he ends up looking bad if things don't go the way that they said. Hudson Taylor, he's the famous, um, he's the fa- famous missionary, founder of China Inland Mission. He famously said, God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. So that's true, but if a church says that God's led them to get this loan and they can't afford it, then it looks like it lacks God's supply. All right, any thoughts or questions? Yes, sir. Jake, nice and loudly. Oh, okay. After the main service, there was another offering taken. So there were like two offerings every. In other words, it was like the whole focus of their ministry changed from paying for this terrible decision. Does that make sense? Yes. It it does make sense. The entire structure of the service was designed to give. Give pill to give. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I don't, I don't know the church you're talking about, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't want you to mention the name of it, but thank you for mentioning, mentioning that example. So, yeah, I appreciate the view of... Oh, Pastor Nathan? No, nice and loudly. Go ahead. Well, yeah. you brought the comparison of somebody being unequally yoked and attaching themselves. I've heard it said uh, or shared that God gave me peace about this. Mm-hmm. Or they look to the future of the potential outcome. This person may come to Christ as a result of my witness in joining... In Well said. He looks for faithfulness, so he's willing to obey what my word instructs here, and then leaving the results of that obedience up to me. Because then ultimately, what we do by obedience, God gets the glory for, God gets the credit for, because of testimony to his name. Yeah, very good. Thank you. Any other thoughts? Robert, nice and lovely. Talk out that way so everyone can hear you, please.
Good. Good. Thank you, Robert. Melissa, nice and loudly. Can you talk over your shoulder so everyone can hear you? I know. Then you're not talking to me, but then they won't hear you otherwise. Melissa was saying she was listening to the radio. Chris, was this like you trying to hear? Okay, so Melissa was sharing that she was listening to a Christian radio station that advertised for an agency that was specifically to lend uh, mortgages to churches for, for buildings and so forth, and that's when she's, she stopped listening. And we can understand that, why that would be a very attractive business, because we know that churches would be institutions that would uh, generally be faithful to repay the debts and would often want mortgages for their, for their buildings. Now, we, are, we won't get to it today, but we are going to talk about when or if there would be um, wise or reasonable reasons to have debt. We will get to that. So you, I, know, I expect you're wondering that. Well, it just, it'll have to be next week or the week after that. So, all right, we'll keep going unless there's anything else. All right, so I will say debt is your, should not be viewed as your friend. It should be viewed as your, as your enemy. It should not be viewed, most of the time, debt should not be viewed as a blessing. Debt should be viewed as a curse. Now, there are, can be times when it's not, people are not in debt for bad reasons, um, but most of the time people put themselves in debt uh, deliberately or intentionally. So the, does that make sense what I'm saying? People, what, what would be some, actually maybe we could even talk about it briefly. What would be some reasonable times people would find themselves in debt against their wishes? Medical, Medical comes to mind. Pastor Nathan. Chris? Yeah, just some bills come in. Uh, I think there were some people in 2007 or 2008 when the economy crashed and maybe their investments lost money that they would have, they would have leaned on or withdrawn. They might have lost their job. So, uh, you know, the bills pile up, uh, job loss, unable to pay expenses, medical ones, drains the emergency funds. And then people that are experiencing those types of circumstances, I wouldn't say should feel condemned by their debt. But if we're honest, I don't think that's the reason most people have debt. Now, I don't have an accurate number or percent, but my suspicion is for most people, it is because of debt that was uh, unnecessarily but deliberately introduced into into people's lives. So when people are in debt, it usually is within their control. It's because they've given over to certain temptations like what? Yeah, covetousness or or discontentment, or materialism, or, or self-entitlement. So I don't hope, I hope I don't sound uh, judgmental or being harsh when I'm saying this, but because I'm actually, I believe, trying to help you. I think this is a fairly loving thing to share with you. I think to discourage you from going against the Bible's counsel is a loving thing for a pastor to do. And that's what's really tough is some of the topics you wanted to, to discuss as a pastor, you can easily be condemned by some people. And I'll, I'll use an example. Let's say abortion. If I ever talk about abortion, I'm, my suspicion is women who have had abortions are convicted and be, would be some of the first people to tell you how horrible they are and the regret that they live with for the rest of their lives. And so there's two reasons you might talk about abortion as, as a pastor. You could because you want to condemn the people who have had one, 
or the other reason is because you're trying to prevent people from committing such a, a heinous sin that will plague them for the rest of their lives, which is really a sign of your love or affection for your congregation. And that would be the reason that me or any of the other churches here would talk about something like that. And I say that it's the same with debt to, provide, to hopefully prevent people. Actually, there was a woman one time who came to the parsonage. I really respected this. I had no idea. She had had an abortion, and she lived with the regret. It sounded like uh, daily. And she wishes I had come down stronger about it to prevent other women from, or fathers as well from experiencing the same regret that she was forced to live with. So, um, if God, just thinking logically, warns us about something in his word, which is what I believe Proverbs does, how often would it be his will to act against that warning? I would say not very often. So, if scripture cautions us about something, then how cautious must we be about allowing that into our lives? And if we answer that honestly, then it's hard to believe that there would be many situations where it would be God's will for us to introduce debt into our lives. So, now let's start talking about different kinds of debt. We'll begin with our nation's debt, because I think that the way our government uh, spends money, their, the irresponsibility with, with our nation's leaders is what many people look at. And if you, we look up to our leaders, and if we see our leaders behaving irresponsibly because we hold them in high regard, then that allows us to feel better about doing some of those things ourselves. And so considering our nation's debt... Michael Ferris, some of you know him. He runs HSLDA, Homeschool Legal Defense Association. Here's what he wrote. He wrote this in 2001. So I don't even know what he would write now if he, if he updated this. I should ask him. But he said, we should demand that our government... Wait, actually, let me ask you this. I don't even want to, I don't want to finish the sentence because I want to see if you know the answer. Who, who, will, who suffers from our debt? Who suffers from our debt? Are her taxpayers... What? That's, this, you're correct. Our taxpayers. I would say our children, their children, our children's children. So debt is always worse for the people in the future than for the people in the present. It's actually the people who in the, in the present, not the taxpayers, but the people who might live off entitlements that often benefit from the, the debt that's incurred. So he said, we should demand that our government respect the economic freedom of our children and grandchildren by eliminating the national debt. He said, in the fall of 1992, the national debt was $4 trillion. That's $16,000 for every man, woman, and child. A $4 trillion stack of $1,000 bills would be 245 miles high. So I mentioned this debt from that long ago so that you could see what has transpired since then. So the national debt was $4 trillion in 1992, $6 trillion in 2001, $15 trillion in 2011, and it is ex- was expected to reach, is it at $30 trillion? That's what I have here. Is it higher than that? Does anyone know? It's not at $30 trillion yet? Yeah, I thought it was closer to like $28 trillion. Okay, so getting close, yeah, getting closer to 30 It just broke 29 Okay. Not like I was pulling for a higher number there for a, come on, 30 trillion in debt. You can do it, U.S. government. So I don't understand personally why we have a debt ceiling. I mean, what is the point of a ceiling, you know, if you just constantly raise it, right? So uh, I don't, maybe it's just kind of a joke that among them they say, let's just tell the government, the people that there is a a debt ceiling, but we don't really respect it. We won't observe it. We're going to be completely reckless with our spending. There's kind of this pretense, but it doesn't really have any, any meaning to us. So what's the solution? I'd say the solution would be for us to bite the bullet 
Uh, the way we accrue debt, I believe, is unsustainable. And ultimately, there's only three possible ways to change the course that we're on as a nation. The first possibility would be to raise taxes. The second possibility would be for our, our nation to spend less. And uh, most economists would believe that either of these strategies would compromise the economy, which is why they, it's very unattractive. Because when the, when the president talks to you know, financial advisors and they say that, well, if you, if you do either of these things or if you, if you uh, spend less money, then that's going to compromise the economy. So lowering taxes, it can stimulate growth and spending, but it also increases debt. As the government spends money or engages in what's called quantitative easing, and I don't know about you guys, but I was getting checks for the last, how, how long have we been getting these checks? And I don't know how much you guys, you guys get, but it's like we didn't even ask for these checks to get thousands of dollars from the government. So it's like, I'm kind of, it's a very bittersweet situation to get money from the government that you don't feel like you need and you didn't ask for and that you know has this detrimental effect to, for the future, for our children. And so giving out that money was not free. There were consequences like inflation for, for all of us. So, or stimulus spending, which is where they inject large amounts of money into the economy, and when money... Oh, Don, nice and loud. Talk over your shoulder so everyone can hear you, please. You want to elaborate? I know what you're saying. I believe, you're saying if... Yes, so it's, okay, so what Don said was that inflation is another way to deal with the national debt. That's not actually what I thought you were going to say. What I thought you were going to say, but I'm not disagreeing with you, I'll repeat what you said. Let me know if I don't repeat it accurately. But the other reason that inflation helps the debt is that the national debt looks smaller as inflation grows, because as soon as $100 looks smaller, $30 trillion looks smaller. So as long as there's inflation, then the, the government doesn't look as bad. But the people who are damaged or hurt by this are people on fixed incomes whose incomes do not increase proportionately to the rate of inflation. And now, did I, what was the other, is that about what you said or no? Okay. Do you want to add to it? I'd like him to hear what you said in the back. Okay. With inflation or hyperinflation, yeah, 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 yeah. Where you Zimbabwe is a premier example. Okay, okay, yeah. Hyperinflation destroying the value of the dollar in those countries. You just start using those dollars to, you know, as a covering for your walls or to burn in your fire or something. So, under those situations, the economy grows. So does the debt. And it should be noted that some economists believe when the government stops stimulus spending, this is interesting. I was listening to Peter Schiff. If you want to listen to someone, I have incredible confidence in him. I have loved listening to Peter Schiff. There is a video of Peter Schiff predicting it's this contrast where you've got Ben Bernanke and you've got all of these, all of the nation's premier economists in like 2004, 2005, predicting the strength of the dollar in the housing market. And then they, it's juxtaposed with this interview with Peter Schiff where in 2005 or 6, he talks about everything tanking and everyone thinks he's foolish. And then sure enough, they call him, I think it's, doc, is it Dr. Doom? Do you know Dave? 
or okay, I think they call him Dr. Doom. Well, he looked like Dr. Brilliant after, after the economy tank. Well, he was, I was watching him one time and he was showing the, the stock market. He was, he was, or he was showing a chart that was graphing our economy. And he was saying that really when the uh, economy has dipped, that the dip should have been further because of the removal of toxic companies and assets. And so he was saying that this recession should actually go down further for the government or for the economy's recovery and health in the long run. A recession is in the long run, although painful at the time, a good thing. But if the government prevents that from occurring through stimulus spending, then it ends up being damaging in the long run, which is what he believes and, and some other economists do. But here's the thing. He's saying that when the government injects billions or trillions of dollars into the economy, that the economy ends up returning to where it would have been without that, but with one big exception that now there is considerably greater debt that the, that the country is strapped with. And so it seems to so the point, to make it real simple, is these economists do not believe that stimulus spending or injecting large amounts of money into the economy are beneficial in the long run. They only have a short-term advantage. So the third solution, this is the one that I, if I you know, could be president, so far no presidents have contacted me and asked for my thoughts on handling the debt situation, but I would say to bite the bullet and just to, to kind of... Um, try not to spend the money that we don't have and to live off the money that we have uh, available to us without spending money uh, on credit cards. So, but then you imagine a political candidate that stands up and makes this recommendation, and I don't even know if he'd get like 1% of the votes if he told people that the solution was to suffer. Or if a candidate said the solution for our country for the long run or for the betterment of our children and grandchildren is sacrifice on our parts, I cannot, he probably wouldn't even finish his speech, you know, before people would change the channel. And so, but that's what I think would, would be best. So the percentage of our nation uh, receiving entitlements grows, so too will the number of voters who want candidates promising more rather than less spending. So as more people benefit from entitlements, as that percentage of people grows, then there will be more people who are going to be voting for those candidates who offer the entitlements that these people love. And that's why you can see people who are going to college, they're racking up, you know, not even tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt, and then what are they screaming? They're racking up hundreds of thousands of dollars in college debt, and then what are they screaming? Debt relief, debt relief, I should go to college for free. And they, they probably wouldn't feel comfortable making those decisions if they thought that they were the ones who were going to have to pay it back. And so you can be sure that they're going to vote for those candidates that afford them that debt relief from their college loans. This quote, it's famous. I, I couldn't find who said it. There are different people who uh, it's attributed to. But go ahead, but just try to, try to hear this because I think it's, it's uh, phenomenally in, in, uh, significant. He says that democracy cannot exist as a permanent form of government. It can only exist until the voters discover that they can vote themselves is this word largest say? Largest, largest say? Does it L A R G E S E E? Does anyone know? Largest? Okay. Wealth, basically. I should have just said that. It can only exist until the voters discover that they can vote themselves wealth from the public treasury. From that moment on, the majority always votes for the candidates promising the most benefits from the public treasury, with the result that a democracy always collapses over loose fiscal policy 
always followed by a dictatorship. The average age of the world's greatest civilizations has been 200. So you kind of think, well, we're getting past that, you know, if, if you put us at 1776, coming up on 250 years. So if I could just paraphrase, this is what it's saying. A democracy only lasts until people learn that they can vote themselves the greatest amount of immediate prosperity. And at that point, the nation is going to be crushed basically under the weight of people's selfishness. People are going to look for those candidates that promise them the most, regardless of the effect that it will have on future generations, and those are the people who are going to receive their votes. Any thoughts or questions? Don, nice and lovely. What, what did you teach at Bakersfield? What, what did you teach at Bakersfield? Okay, we have, we have a, an economics professor here, <laughs> a university-level economics professor. Don, get, why don't you just come up here and take over and just uh, straighten this out? Yeah, I hope I haven't said anything you disagree with. Why, why don't you come up here? Seriously, Don. We're going to conclude soon. You can come up here and then everyone can hear you. I'm serious. Yep. Come on up, Don. Yep. Yeah, there we go, Don. Yeah, Don. Don Oswald, everyone. <laughs> well, I didn't. I mean, you got to move it a little faster there, Don. I did. Mitt Romney was running for president in 2016. He was giving a presentation to a closed audience, and somebody was. Somebody was filming this. You should start from the beginning. Now they can hear you. And he he pointed out that. And I, start from the beginning. Now they can hear you. Start from the beginning. Oh, oh. <laughs> okay. Mitt, Mitt Romney was running for president in 2016. He was giving a presentation to a closed audience, but somebody was filming this on their smartphone. And during his presentation, he pointed out that. I think he said 48%, but maybe give or take a percent. 48% of households pay no taxes. He was bringing up the point that you're making, and that is those people have an enormous stake in voting in a government that will continue to support them over against the people who have to pay the bills, and once that gets beyond 50%, there's no way to turn it around. The news media picked up on that, and he got, he got beaten to a pulp over that, and it probably led to his, his loss in, in his campaign. Even though it was an accurate truth. Yeah, even though it was absolutely true, and it brings up that point of wisdom that is actually a, a serious concern. We're probably close to 50% right now. When you get over 50% of people who are dependent on government support, they have all the interest in the world to continue to vote, vote for more policies and more more and um, ben, more um, entitlements. Huh? entitlements entitlements greater and richer entitlements and the people who have to pay the bills can't win because they're a minority now and we're we're close to that do you have anything else you want to share up here i don't have anything else okay well one one thing while you were while you, you were hold up, while you were first talking about interest i was thinking back to i had studied this issue a long long time ago and i was trying to remember what i had discovered back then, and so I may have missed you saying this. I don't remember. But it's my recollection that regarding interest payments, in the Old Testament, Jews were prohibited from charging interest of fellow Jews. They were not prohibited of charging interest of non-Jews. 
So Jews were not prevented from engaging in trade or commercial exchanges with other people that involved loans as long as those, and they could charge interest for those loans as long as the other party was not a Jew. So it wasn't a total condemnation of loans or interest. I don't know if that conflicts with No, that was, I, that was good. I felt like I okay. didn't okay. say um, For years, a, a professional economist used to, used to make this a, a criticism of Christianity, that we're opposed to debt and we're opposed to charging interest. Interest is a really important variable in, in determining how efficient an economy can operate in allocating scarce capital resources. And so if Christianity is opposed to interest, then Christianity is in favor of inherently inefficient economies. But actually, it's not true. The Bible does not teach in opposition to, to debt as long as it's not usurious, and in the case of Jews, as long as you're not loaning to another Jew at interest. But business debts are okay. That's, what I, that's the conclusion I reached years ago. Anyone have any questions for Don while he's up here? One, one last point, and you may be aware of this, but you should be paying a lot of attention to it. Um, as the federal government has gone deeper and deeper into deficit spending, they're, become, they're, they're facing increasing difficulty in selling, selling the debt. The Federal Reserve has been buying, for the, probably the last three, three or four years, about half of all the debt issued by the Treasury. The Federal Reserve has been funding about 50% of the deficit. That, has been, that is driving up the price level. That, that is one of the main engines of inflation, and so the Fed is under pressure to increase interest rates. Well, interest rates have for about 10 or 15 years been at historically low levels, which makes it relative, relatively easy to finance these trillions of dollars in debt. Imagine what it's going to do to the deficit if interest rates rise back to up to their historic level, which is around 5 or 6%, the interest costs will begin to eat up all of the federal government's revenue. There will be nothing left for parks, nothing left for health care, or whatever. So the Federal Reserve is going to be under enormous pressure to lower inflation 
and at the same time pay for all the deficit spending of the federal government. Thank you, Don. Thanks, Don. All right. <laughs> that was my son, Johnny, leading that applause for you over there, Don. <laughs> Okay, went a little over. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. We continue this discussion next week. And whenever something's a wisdom issue, which I believe that is, if I'm wrong, help me to be convicted of that. But when we're dealing with a wisdom issue, it's not as black and white or cut and dry as some other issues. It's not like talking about adultery or, or lying. And so help us to rightly view debt and any our, our relationship to it, not just this morning, but over these coming weeks. I don't think it's something that could be covered in one Sunday, Lord, so bless these weeks that we discuss it and anything that was truthful and faithful to your word, I pray would bear witness to your people here. Go with us now into the worship service. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you were dismissed.